Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's on page 808 of the Pew Bible, if you're, if you're using that. We've been looking at uh, um, many of the, the main events that happened during the, the first Christmas, and this morning we'll be looking at the visit of the wise man of the Magi. Hear now God's word. <coughs> Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, but behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And Mary, his mother, Excuse me. And, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us your, your word that we might hear proclaim the, the realities and the truths that have happened that first Christmas morning. But we also thank you for your spirit, Lord, that takes those words that we read, those things that, that we hear, and, and, and by your grace uh, gives us the power that we need, Lord, to, to change our lives through these things. Uh, as you work in our hearts. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, the events of Advent, Advent are sometimes so familiar that we can miss the blessing as, as we listen to these stories, these accounts of what happened on that first Christmas once again. Uh, sort of, uh, this was illustrated this, this week as we gathered together on Thursday night for our Grub and Games Night as a church. We got together and just had a meal and, and played some games together. And one of the things that we did is you walked into our house, your uh, name tag was put on your back with a, a character, a Christmas character. And it could be a biblical character, it could be a literary character, it could be a character from a movie. But you had to then go around and talk with people and find out, ask them questions about who you were so you could try to guess who you were and there was one young man I was talking to and he had uh, been trying to figure out who he was and so I was trying to give him some hints as to who he was and I said well you're a biblical character and 
so on and so forth. And finally, I just said, okay, I talked about you in my sermon last week. And he looked at me and he goes, um, I'm sorry. He goes, sometimes I don't listen as carefully as probably I should. And I thought, you're not the only one. You know, I appreciated his honesty, you know, that, that he would share that. But uh, he did finally guess. And if you're now wondering who he was, well, you'll have to go back and listen to the sermon to see who I preached on last week. But, uh, you know, the, the things that we read, the accounts that, that we have that are given to us are very significant. And so I want this morning just to really walk through the story of the Magi. I don't really have points to my sermon per se as far as an outline. I just sort of want to walk through the events and, and make some observations as as we look at this this morning. Well, as we think about the, the first century world at this time, uh, despite the visits of the angels to Mary and to Joseph uh, and the shepherds, at this point in the Christmas story, life in Israel was pretty much like normal. I mean, you would think with all these spectacular things that we've been reading about the last several weeks, that there would be this great stir and uprising. And Yes, the shepherd went out and told people, and they were amazed at their story, but nothing really changed in, in life, if you think about it, which is sort of ironic with just the glorious events that had happened. Roman soldiers still patrolled the streets as a visible reminder that the emperor in Rome claimed Judah, Israel, as his own land. And not only that, but Herod was king. Now, what you have to understand about Herod, the, and he's called Herod the Great, he was an Edomite. In other words, he was a descendant of Esau. He wasn't a descendant of Jacob, and so he wasn't from the line of David. He wasn't really even a valid king. The only reason he was in power is because the emperor had put him in power to rule over Israel. And, and he was a, a man who, who didn't really care much for God's people. He wasn't a great fan of the Jews. But that's okay because they weren't much of a fan of his either. And if you've ever had a president of the United States that you didn't really particularly care for, then you may understand what they might have felt like. But he was never really accepted by the Jewish people as their king, even though he did much for their country. And he actually was a man, as you know, the history of, of Israel, they're, they're not always the easiest people to, to oversee and to care for, but he actually did bring peace to that era, and he did many building projects and things, so he did benefit the people, but there wasn't really a great relationship between King Herod and the people. So, so here's a king who had sort of a, a fragile hold on Judea, and he was anxious to keep his title as king over people who really not only didn't care much for him, but probably hated him. And so you can only imagine Herod's reaction when strangers showed up from the east in Jerusalem and inquired about uh, him who has been born king of the Jews, as we read in verse 2. Now, it wasn't that strangers showed up. That, that wasn't so unusual. I mean, it's interesting. If you look at God and his wisdom, what he did, he gave his people this tiny 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 little piece of land you know called Israel right but it was strategically placed where all the major powerhouse countries around them had to travel through that tiny little country to get anywhere else and so Jerusalem was sort of the crossroads 
of all of this. And you just think about that, how awesome in God's wisdom that he put his people in the place where they could just, as they lived as God's people, as they walked with him, then the world would see that. Now, unfortunately, Israel was not faithful, and they didn't always reflect the glory of God to the nations around them. But uh, these strangers showed up, which is pretty typical. Uh, travelers often arrived from Arabia, Egypt, and North Africa as they were heading north, or, or likewise traders from Europe or Asia Minor heading south, and they would come through Jerusalem. But these travelers were different. These were magi. Uh, we sometimes call them kids wise men. Right? They were schooled in all the ancient arts of learning. They were men who had studied books. They were uh, students of the stars, astrologers who would uh, view the things in the heaven. And they came seeking him who had been born king of the Jews. Now, notice what Matthew says here. He does not say he was born to be king of the Jews, as if that was a future tense, that one day he would be a king. But Matthew actually says... Him who is now king of the Jews. And here are the Magi telling of a star like no other star, a light which indicated that there was this newborn king that had been born, and he was born king of the Jews. How the Magi knew all this stuff, I don't know. It's a mystery. I, I will tell you this. As I studied this passage this week, I think I had more questions that were unanswered, then I had questions that I got answered in, in one sense. You know, our minds just naturally go, you know, how many wise men were there? And, you know, what was the star made of? And where did they come from? And, you know, how long was it after Jesus was born that this all happened? And we have all of these questions that are in our minds. And God says, that's not necessary. You don't need to know those things to know what the focus of the story is. And, and so all we know is that somehow God reached these men so as to know that they should follow this star to a king who is worthy of worship. And God on this occasion communicated to these eastern people a message in a way that was familiar with them. How remarkable it is that God has people in places that we least expect it. I'm sure we would not have thought about God using Gentiles to be the first worshipers of the Son of God. And yet he did. God had people in places that we did not expect. Well, certainly everything about these magi was surprising to God's people. Their visit, the star that they were talking about, this message of the king and everything. Uh, these men, though, had not come merely to make an announcement, but they had come to worship. Now... Having said all this, and with the background that I gave you about Herod, you can just imagine the terror that must have struck Herod's heart. Uh, if you think about the Old Testament, if you've read through the kings, and th this is even amongst God's people, this happened, where one king would take the place of another king after he had died, and, and it was not uncommon that the king would take and kill all of the family members of the previous king. Because they didn't want somebody later on to come and say, I have a rightful claim to the throne. Okay. Now, if that was the practice amongst kings, and we read this in secular literature as well, you can only imagine what Herod would have thought to think, here you're saying that there may be a legitimate heir to the throne. Someone who comes from the line of David 
who could take my place. He knew that he really had no claim whatsoever upon that throne. And surely the Zionist would have been eager to get rid of Herod, you know, and uh, to put a new king on the throne. Maybe even the people would as well. But there's also a sense in which the people were disturbed by the news. We read in verse 3 that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, if the Magi show us that God has people in places that we least expect, then the response of the people uh, here shows us that sometimes God does not have his people in places where we would most expect to find them. You know, you wouldn't expect people to be troubled at the news that the king had come. This is the Messiah that they've been looking for for hundreds of years. And somebody shows up and says, he's here. You would have thought that they might have reacted in some way. At least it, it is remarkable that God's people can be so timid and so cowardly in their response to God's revelation. And, and, and even their, their muted response, even their distorted response of the people of Jerusalem may seem really unbelievable to us as we think back on this. We're like, really? You guys didn't, you know, inquire of these magi about the details? I know it's sort of an unusual way for the news to be uh, revealed to them was, was through a star, but still, would you not check that out for themselves? But, but I wonder sometimes if, if our response to God's word sometimes looks remarkable to people around us, whether that be to Christians or even to unbelievers as we profess faith in Jesus Christ, um, really how impossible that we can go sometimes a month at a time and uh, our views about God seem very low. We don't rejoice in who God is. We're not touched by his word, you know, in such a way that, that our conversations are filled with our God and what he is doing in our lives. Maybe our conversations are, are way more earthly and worldly and we're much more excited about the hobby that we have or about the last thing that we saw on Netflix, the series that we're currently watching. And we just want to tell everybody about that. But we don't see the same excitement about our Savior. And yet at the same time, we come every Sunday morning and we worship, we confess with our lips that God is the center of our world. Maybe our response to God's revelation is a more remarkable one than those that we've read in our text today. And people may say the same thing about us. Well, anyway, Herod calls together a council of people. Uh, it, we read in verses 3 and 4, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. Now, I don't know who exactly this was, whether it was an assembly of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council. It, it might have been, but probably more likely it was a meeting of all the religious priests and the theologians who would be willing to have a conversation with Herod. And, and Herod's question was very clear and concise. Where is the Christ who is born, right? The Christ, the Messiah who is born. Now, normally it wouldn't be good for your health to talk to King Herod about another king, but he asked the question, so it's, it's fair game. And in verse 5 we read, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophets. Now, these men, these priests, not only knew where the Messiah was to be born, 
But they could summarize Micah's prophecy from Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and, and verse 4, where we read in Matthew's gospel, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, how, how striking this prophecy should have been if Herod had thought about it. This long-promised ruler would not be significant because of where he was from, but rather his birthplace would be significant, becomes significant because of how great he is as a king. He sort of made the place. The king is so great that his birth would make this insignificant town one of the most important places in the world, this little town of Bethlehem. And, and who is this ruler that they talk about in Bethlehem? What would he be like? He, he's a ruler. He is a shepherd. He's someone who loves his people. He's someone who cares for them. He's someone who guides them and watches over them. He's not like King Herod uh, that hated the people. And unfortunately, rather than Herod hearing this news and repenting of his tyrannical ways and his rule and accepting this new king, he... he wanted to find out more about his competition so he could take him out. Certainly he didn't want any shepherd leading God's people into greener pastures. And so Herod calls the Magi to him in secret for a private meeting and his purpose was to find out exactly the time the star appeared. Uh, what he had hoped to learn was what exactly, uh, how old this, this newborn king was. We see that in, in verse 7. And, and only after getting that information, which he later used, uh, as we read in Matthew 2, about how Herod, when the Magi went home a different way and he slayed all these children, that's how he chose that age, because of the news that he had gotten from the Magi. But, but only after getting this information did Herod send the Magi on their way, asking them to be, take a careful search for the child, and then come back and let me know so that I could come and worship him as king. Herod had no intention of worshiping Christ. It makes me wonder how many say that they are coming to worship God, but have no such thing in mind. And I think we could even be guilty of that as we come at, in Sunday school. Uh, in the new members class, we were talking about worship here at Kirk of the Plains. And, and just... You know, how we come to glorify God and, and, and to enjoy Him forever. And we do that in our worship. But how many times do we, do we come to worship? And, and maybe we come really to, to uh, be in church because that's just how we grew up. We go to church every Sunday. That's just what you do. Or maybe we come because, you know, this is a good group of people. You are a good group of people, by the way. And, you know, people want to be around you. And they come and they say, I, I haven't seen my friends at Kirk of the Plains. And I want to go and I want to be with them. And I want to see one another. Maybe sometimes that can sort of be more the driving factor um, rather than that of worship. But Herod was bold in his hypocrisy. But he's definitely not the only one to act in such a way to appear that he wanted to worship. When in reality, that was not his full intent. But anyway, the Magi strike out alone and they go look for the child and it, it is noteworthy that no one goes with them uh, to, to find this uh, awaited Messiah 
Now, it makes sense that Herod didn't send any guards or anything. You might think, well, he should have sent guards because then he would have known exactly where they were. That might have looked a little heavy-handed to the people, though. But, but it is amazing, if you think about it, that none of the people went with the Magi. Here they are as a people saying that they're looking for this Messiah, and they've been doing this for centuries. Someone shows up and, and says, hey, he's here, and no one goes to check it out. And, and it, it seems like it, it's, it's just odd, if even if the people didn't do it, that none of the priests would. You know, even if the thing was a hoax, it seems like the priest would have taken the time to go to check this out, because if nothing else, they would have wanted to know what was going on, so they could have warned the people against such a, a heretical thing that's been proclaimed. But if it was true, which it was, then they would have experienced this new king. And so, instead of people going with the Magi, they make that five-mile trek from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Uh, and, and they did so uh, to that small, insignificant town whose only claim to fame is that it is the city where David of old was, was born. Now, I think it's interesting uh, that God chooses, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, God uses small things. God uses insignificant things. God uses things that most people wouldn't look at or even be uh, cognizant of. Things that people just walk past uh, to accomplish His purpose and for His own glory. And He uses this small village for the birthplace of the King of the Ages, the King from Heaven. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, wow, we as an American church would need to hear that, do we not? We're, we're always trying to think about bigger and better. We're trying to, to think about our propensity to minister from a position of strength. If we could just, you know, have the right resources, if we could just have enough people, if we could just, you know, um, come up with the right strategy, then surely we could do great things for God. And so we oftentimes look at this, always seeking to be bigger and better, more influential in the community, often strategizing how we can do ministry rather than seeing how God does ministry through that which is weak and broken and insignificant. And I thought about that, and it challenged my thinking as I thought about our church. You know, here we are, a small group of people, a missions church. What can Kirk of the Plains do that would be so significant in Andover, or Newton, or Augusta, or Hayesville, or wherever it is that you live. And you think, oh, you know, maybe when the Lord adds more people to our church, or maybe when our budget gets a little bit bigger, or maybe when, you know, we, we get the right strategy or the right emphasis for the new year, or if we could just do these things and we could do great things for God. And I thought, oh, Lord, forgive me for my sin. You know, God, you can do mighty and great things through this church and through these things. 
Can we not have a tendency to dismiss the things that are too small and humble and to think that God cannot use such things for His purpose? And you know what? Maybe you struggle with the same thing today. Maybe you think about yourself and maybe God has been challenging you or He's been challenging your, your family, your household to do certain things, to step out in faith and to trust Him, to maybe minister in a certain way. Maybe it's to a neighbor. Maybe it's to someone at work. Maybe it is just to, to uh, reach out in a more intentional way to a group of people, an organization that you belong to. And you're just like Moses. Oh, Lord, but I, I'm weak. Oh, Lord, I can't speak. Oh, Lord, I cannot do these things. And you know what I want to say? Praise be to God you can't do those things. Because then you don't receive the glory, but He does. Do you trust Him? Do you believe that He uses those small things? Is your prayer, Lord, we can do that. We, we can make it our prayer that we ought to not overlook the people or the places, perhaps even the churches, of no significance in the world. We can make it our prayer that God will do great things through them for His glory. Well, the Magi are determined um, in their mission. And we read in verse 9, And they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, I wish I could convey to you the number of pages that have been written about the star of Bethlehem. A pastor could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks looking at all the different views of what people think the star was. And, you know, here again, it's not significant. God would have told us if we needed to know. Some think it was an uh, astronomical phenomenon. Others think it was the Shekinah glory of God. Just like God led His people of old, the Israelites, into the wilderness. And He did it by the pillar and the fire. And they saw the Shekinah glory of God. And, and some think that that's what this is. But the reality is, is that we don't know for certain. We do know that the star directed the Magi to the very place where the child was. And we see that in verse 9. And, and by this time, we read in verse 11, uh, that Mary and Joseph had moved from this stable where Christ was born to a house. Now it's interesting, as you look at this text, that the first 10 verses of this account really covers a period of months, maybe even years. We don't know exactly how many, but it it covered a long time as these Magi came searching for this newborn king. But now Matthew sort of slows down as he comes to verse 11. Okay, and he just goes line by line to show us how it was that the Magi found the child and what they did as a response. It's just like Matthew is saying, guys, look, this is where your focus is to be. This is what you ought to see. And the Magi, they enter the house, they see the child and marry the mother, and they did what they could only do. They bowed down and they worshipped him. They bowed down and they worshipped him. Actually, the text says in verse 11 uh, that they fell down. Okay, The Greek word means to, to throw oneself to the ground as a sign of devotion and humility. You see, here are these very learned men these men uh, from the East, these, these Gentiles, 
and they throw themselves to the ground as a sign of their devotion and their humility. It was actually a practice uh, that people would do before high-ranking people and, and even divine beings. And so just by throwing themselves to the ground and bowing before Christ, they were acknowledging uh, His importance. This is this baby, this little child that, that is before them, and they were acknowledging Him as who He really is. And they not only worshipped Him, but they worshipped Him tangibly as well through gifts and, and presented Him with the most celebrated things that their country could provide. They gave Him their best. They gave Him, uh, laid out before Him, a gift that was worthy for a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and then, once again, uh, even after verse 11, where we see this sort of expanded, and we see this worship, and we see this focus upon Jesus Christ, then the story is just sort of condensed again, and just gives us a brief summary in verse 12. Not a lot of details. We don't hear about what they said to Mary or Joseph. We just simply read in verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Magi followed what they were told in the dream, much the same way they followed the star that they had seen. Now, as we look at this text today, it is truly an amazing event. An account so filled with, with meaning. And, and, and it's meant to evoke in us a sense of wonder and awe and praise for everyone who hears it. As we focus upon Christ as the King, God Himself incarnate who comes as a man. And surely you can understand why the Holy Spirit would move Matthew to include this in his Gospel. And even though the, the circumstances would suggest that this baby is nothing special, the wise men recognized that he was no ordinary king. And it wasn't that they didn't, that, they're, uh, that, they're, that, that they just, uh, for, that they just sort of uh, laid aside all the circumstances and said, we're going to believe this regardless. They saw the revelation that God had given to them in in this star and, and, and reveal to them in, in some way that there would be this king. And they believed that over the circumstances that they saw. Um, and if they could recognize this, uh, I think J.C. Ryle makes a good point when he said, there is no greater example in all of the Bible of faith that these wise men believed in Christ when they had never seen him. But that's not all. Uh, they believed in him when the scribes and the Pharisees were unbelieving. But that's not all. Uh, they believed in him when they saw him, a little infant on Mary's knee, and they worshipped him as a king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak, needing a mother's care. And yet, when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world. And they bowed down and they worshipped Him. Because they believed the revelation that God had given to them. 
You know, it's, it's that, that same kind of faith that we see even in the thief on the cross. Ryle points out that he had faith in Christ as he called out to him, Lord, and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's the kind of faith worth imitating as it is the kind of faith that God delights to honor. And he still delights to honor that kind of faith today as we trust in him for who he is. If these men could obediently follow God's revelation to them in a star, can we, who have God's complete revelation, walk by faith secure in what he has told us? Can we take to the bank the promises that God has given to us? Can we rest in those? Can we walk according to those things? Even when the circumstances in life might tell us something different, could we say, yeah, I know I see this, or I know I hear this, but this is what God has said. And that's what's true. My eyes can deceive me, my ears can deceive me, my emotions can lead me down the wrong path, but the word of our God stands forever. And we can trust that. Can we not apply our minds and the knowledge that we have to seek Him better? Can we not follow a more clear guide, the revelation that God has given to us in His Word? Can we not give Him our trust and our worship, brothers and sisters? His kingdom is so much greater today with millions of Christians scattered all around the earth than it was back in the time of the Magi. Uh, not only did God's people know him, but, but God even opened that to Gentiles. And we see the, uh, the fulfillment of that in our day and time. And can we not learn from the Magi to trust God and to worship him when his kingdom looks small and weak and insignificant from our perspective? Oh, I hear all the time as a pastor how ineffective the church is. And how, as a church, you know, you just need to, to buy into this program or you just need to do this thing different in the church and you'll, turn, you'll reach this pagan culture. Is that really our work to do? Or is it that we need to understand that God is at work in building up His kingdom and He has called us, even in the weakness of the American church, even in the insignificant, uh, at least from the culture's perspective, about our church, that God can still save sinners. Amen? And He will build His kingdom. And He will continue to do so. Can we give Him the best of the gifts that He has given to us? Given to Him only that which is rightfully His. Can we offer our very lives to Him to use as He wishes? You know, perhaps, by God's mercy... If we see something of what those magi began to see, perhaps then we can see like those magi that our story, our lives, as great as we might think they are, are nothing compared to the child that they worshipped that day. And that the only, the only way that our lives have any sense of significance is as we give our lives to Him. As we are His. And we are here to do His bidding. You know, we see here today in the account of the Magi that that single-minded devotion of faith in these men who traveled from afar. We don't know how many 
or what it cost them or how far they went. But it, it appears it was a great distance. And, and, and you see, for the Magi, it was not difficult for them to hope in that which God had revealed to them. And, and as great as the distance was for these Magi to travel, it was nothing compared to the distance that King Jesus traveled to become man for us. And Jesus came to a people who were indifferent to his coming, a people who were troubled at the announcement of his birth, to, to a people who would fear a king rather than worship the true king from heaven. That's who Jesus came to, who would have thought that he would come for a people who would not walk just a few miles to see if he had really arrived who would have thought that Jesus would come to villagers who wouldn't even give up their own bed for a pregnant woman, or who would have thought that he would come for a people who would hear the word of God week in and week out and still reject him. While people came so far from the east to adore him. And yet that's what happened. That's what happened in Jerusalem. That's what happened in Bethlehem when he came to the world on that dark night. And, and I think we need to ask ourselves, what, what does he see, what does God see when he shines his searchlight into our hearts? Does he see people who fear men rather than God? Does he find people who are ashamed to worship him when others do not? Does he find selfish sinners who fend for themselves but do little to care for the poor or the strangers or for people in need. What does he see when he looks into, the, into our hearts as only God can do? I would assume that there is little that he would see that we would want him to make known in this assembly today, right? We're like, oh God, don't let people see what my heart's really like. We know that God sees the worst of sinners. But, but the good news is that God knew those sinners long ago and he knows us as sinners even today. And yet in spite of all that, that he knows about us, he came to do us good. He came to save his people. He came to warn us of a great danger and to show us the right way to heaven. And, and he didn't come in a dream, but he came in the person of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to tell us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And only in his visitation to the world can we find meaning and hope and salvation for our many sins. Amen. And so when we read Matthew's account of the Magi, we see that it's, it's not the gifts that they brought to him that make us wonder, or, or even the faith of the Magi, but it is the gift that God has given to us. The gift that we still need, not just to become Christians, but to walk as disciples of Jesus Christ, knowing that he is there with us, never to leave us, Never to forsake us. You may be here this morning and you may see the duplicity of your heart. Or maybe you have just been sort of walking in your own way. 
not really aware of the Lord. He's sort of a distant thing. Your salvation is something that was done in the past, but it doesn't affect your life now. But God has given us His Son. For He so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And He gave His Son who began His life in a wooden feeding trough and ended it on a wooden cross as a costly sacrifice, a gift from God to God that we would never deserve and we could never repay. And if you are here today and you are struggling with that duplicity of heart and you are, are here, here and you're not walking with Him, it's not like you're beyond God's reach. Cry out to Him as your Savior. Call out to Him to change your heart, to trust in Him. Though there's no gift that we can give to God to pay Him back, let us pray that our gracious Father would help us to trust in His Son and our Savior for all of our days, giving thanks to Him for all that we have by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's bow our heads this morning and just reflect upon this word that's been preached this morning. Our Lord and our God, we worship you for this amazing gift. And we worship Christ, the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Oh, praise you, God. We ask that you would help us to trust in, in Him as our Savior all of our days giving thanks to Him with all that we have by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that You would hasten the day when the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the water covers the sea. And we will give You the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.